Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures. The first lecture in the 2015 series was given by Professor Andrew Murphy from the University of St Andrews. Professor Murphy's lecture, Acts of Rebellion, Shakespeare in the 1916 Rising, was introduced by Professor Tony Roach of the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. It's a great pleasure to, for me to introduce Professor Andrew Murphy of the University of St Andrews, who is a highly regarded and prolific scholar of Shakespeare studies, Irish studies, cultural history and the history of the book. Uh, he was born in Limerick, he attended Trinity College Dublin and then did his PhD at Brandeis University in the US. Um, he's the author of a wide range of books. He has a book on Seamus Heaney. Uh, he's a book on Ireland, colonialism and Renaissance literature. Um, a book on, uh, a very acclaimed book on Shakespeare for the people, working class readers, 1800 to 1900, which came out in 2008. And this week, this week, hot breaking news, uh, his new book, Bringing the Nation to Book, Ireland, Reading and Cultural Nationalism has been accepted by Cambridge University Press. And if any of you have had dealings with Cambridge University Press, you'll know that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, he's, in, he's in Ireland uh, for the year, back in Ireland for the year, because he was recently awarded a Royal Society of Edinburgh European Visiting Research Fellowship to further his research on literacy and Irish cultural nationalism. And he's carrying out that research at the National Library of Ireland is currently a visiting fellow at the Long Room Hub TCD, but I'm glad he's been let go by Trinity for the night, and we are happy to, to, um, to, to welcome him here. One has known from recent years that uh, theatre and the rising have a great deal in common. Uh, more attention is being paid to the fact that not only were they poets, which Yeats pointed out a long time ago, but they were also playwrights. Actually, Yeats frequently means playwright as well as poet when he uses the term, so he had it covered. But Thomas McDonough, who had a play at the Abbey and who also acted in Chekhov, the first Irish productions of Chekhov, which were done directed by his brother, um, and they, they mounted, they actually remounted a production the year after the rising that the brother had been in is a fascinating detail. Um, but also P- Porrick Pierce, obviously his plays have come on under renewed critical attention recently. And, the, and the, the rising itself has been seen as a piece of theatre, street theatre, if you like. But tonight we are going to learn uh, the original insight that Shakespeare was involved uh, in, in the lecture entitled Acts of Rebellion, Shakespeare and the 916 Rising. Professor Andrew Murphy. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Tony, and uh, thank you all for coming out on this Thursday evening to to hear this talk. Uh, It's a great honour to have been asked to give one of this year's uh, UCD Abbey Shakespeare lectures. I thought just before I begin, I might just fill in a little bit of background to the topic. Um, I'm sure most people here know that Shakespeare was born in 1564 and he died in 1616. And by convention, it's believed that he was born and died on the same date, that he was born and died on the 23rd of April. Uh, Whether he was actually born and died on the 23rd of April is perhaps an open question. But there's a kind of symbolic uh, convenience to that date 
because, of course, it's also the feast of St. George. So you have the English national poet uh, being born and dying on the feast day of the English national saint. So on the 23rd of April uh, 1916 uh, was the 300th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. And celebrations of various kinds were planned in England and uh, throughout Britain. But there were many oddities about celebrating uh, the Shakespeare tercentenary at that precise time. Uh, German scholars had made a massive contribution to Shakespeare studies, particularly in the 19th century. So with the tercentenary falling in the middle of the First World War, uh, you had this kind of schism between what was happening in Germany in terms of celebrations and what was happening in Britain in terms of, of celebrations. The 23rd of April 1916 happened to be Easter Sunday, and there was a certain amount of anxiety about whether one could celebrate a secular figure like Shakespeare on Easter Sunday, whether it would be in some odd way blasphemous uh, you know, to be celebrating the tercentenary uh, on one of the most, uh, uh, the, one of the most important uh, religious uh, holidays. In Ireland, uh, certain events also took place that almost coincided uh, with the tercentenary uh, starting on, not on the 23rd, of course, but on the 24th, uh, on Easter Monday. Uh, I think by the end of 2016, we may all well be sick of hearing about the events uh, that commenced on the 24th. Uh, of, uh, of April uh, 1916. So I thought I'd get in ahead of the game tonight uh, and start talking about the relationship uh, between Shakespeare, uh, the tercentenary to some extent, uh, but also the Easter Rising. So acts of rebellion, Shakespeare, and the 1916 Rising. On the 24th of March 1916, the Irish Times published a short article under the title Shakespeare in Dublin. The writer of the article worried that, with a month to go to the tercentenary of Shakespeare's death, no hint has reached us that Dublin intends to take any formal part in it. This was felt to be particularly depressing, given that it was quite probable that the tercentenary of Unser Shakespeare, our Shakespeare in German, will be celebrated in Berlin. At this time, the editorial notes, the whole empire is fighting for ideals that Shakespeare, more than any other human being, helped to shape and glorify. Irish soldiers are bleeding and dying for those ideals. Was it wholly impossible, the Times asked, that at such a time we in Dublin should render thanks to Shakespeare. Three days later, the Dublin branch of the British Empire Shakespeare Society, Tony has just mentioned, wrote to the editor of the Irish Times to assure him that his Jeremiah was unjustified. The society had organized performances of Hamlet at the Abbey for the 7th and 8th of April. Arrangements had been made for Mr. Martin Harvey and his company to produce at the Gaiety Theatre that patriotic play, Henry V. 
and it was expected that Harvey would deliver some special afternoon lecture or entertainment in connection with the tercentenary. The president of the Society, the Right Honorable Mr. Justice Madden, would also deliver a very important paper. The Dublin branch had, in fact, been busy with preparations for the tercentenary for some time. It had run an essay competition on the topic William Shakespeare, comma, Patriot, with entries being judged by Professor Wilbraham Fitzjohn Trench of Trinity College, Dublin. In January of 1916, The Winter's Tale had been produced at the Abbey under the auspices of the Society. Other events were also being organized to celebrate the tercentenary in Dublin. Trinity placed its copies of the four folio editions of Shakespeare's plays on display. The National Literary Society hosted a lecture by Professor William McGuinness entitled Shakespeare's Debt to Irishmen. And in a rather more specialist vein, a Mr. Thomas Mealy read a paper at the Kingstown Gardeners Society on the topic, Was Shakespeare a Gardener? <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. The editorial writer at the Irish Times wished, however, for something more specific, something styled as really national that would affect a linking together of the tribute to Shakespeare and the prosecution of the war in a way that should redound to the success of both our aims. Speculating as to what this could be, he writes, we can imagine nothing better calculated to stir the blood of the people than the recitation on Easter Monday, say, by skilled elocutionists of some of the many famous passages in which Shakespeare at once extols the past achievements of his countrymen and urges them to emulate the glories of their fathers. As it happens, on Easter Monday, 1916, the enthusiastic, not to say obsessive, Dublin playgoer, Joseph Holloway, wandered into the center of the city from his home in the suburbs, seeking precisely a theatrical performance. His first port of call was, aptly enough perhaps, the Empire Theater, where he found the doors closed. He passed on to the Abbey, which was also closed, Running into the bell porter and pit entrance keeper of the Abbey, he was told that the GPO had been captured early that morning and companies of volunteers were entrenched in Stevens Green and that Westland Row Railway Station was in their hands also. Holloway had, of course, unwittingly wandered into the heart of the 1916 uprising. In his travels, he came across a poster declaring that Ireland was now under Republican government. He characterized the poster, which was, of course, the proclamation of the Republic, as a long and floridly worded document full of high hopes. Those involved in the Easter Rising can be said to have rejected almost everything that the British Empire Shakespeare Society and the institutions in its orbit in Ireland stood for, where the Irish Times referred quite bluntly to our enemies, the Germans. The insurrectionist, insurrectionists looked to Germany as an ally and hoped to receive German arms and officers to assist them in their campaign. 
for nationalists, Trinity College was, as Jack White, a leading commander in the Irish Citizen Army, put it, the alma mater of the British connection. For one nationalist commentator, the Irish Times might as well have renamed itself the English Times for all the positive contribution it made to Irish society and culture. Uh, Another nationalist commentator, D.P. Moran, did rename it in his own newspaper, The Leader, styling the Irish Times the bigot's dustbin. And yet it was only almost everything associated with the culture of the British Empire Shakespeare Society that the insurrectionists rejected. Crucially, the one thing they emphatically did not reject was Shakespeare himself. In his overview, History of Irish Nationalism, my St. Andrew's colleague Richard English has noted that in terms specifically of their literary taste, these were paradoxically very British rebels. Individual advanced nationalists in this period professed a love of Byron, Dickens, Scott, Browning, Shelley, Chaucer, and above all else, of Shakespeare. Indeed, John O'Leary, one of the most senior figures in Irish nationalist circles in this era, once observed that if England had only Shakespeare and Milton and the rest, the Fenians would not be against her. Irish nationalists' embracing of Shakespeare was, in fact, all of a piece with radical political appropriations of the playwright that had occurred on the other side of the Irish Sea during the course of the 19th century. At the time of the previous tercentenary of Shakespeare's birth in 1864, the London celebrations were lent a political edge as they were planned and executed by the Working Men's Shakespeare Committee who organized a commemorative tree planting ceremony on Primrose Hill in London. The event segued into a frankly political protest, as in the wake of the tree planting, a large section of the crowd reconfigured itself into a demonstration to object to the way in which a visit to Britain by the Italian radical nationalist Giuseppe Garibaldi had been cut short by government authorities. So the Shakespeare demonstration turned into uh, a Garibaldi demonstration. The close intertwining of the two events was such that one periodical, the Comic News, humorously observed at the time that many people have been discovered in remote localities talking wildly of the dramatic works of William Garibaldi and the military achievements of Giuseppe Shakespeare. (laughs) The commemorative and political events at Primrose Hill can be said to have had their roots in a tradition of radical autodidacticism stretching back to the early decades of the 19th century. Self-educated radicals, particularly those associated with the Chartist movement, tended to work their way through a relatively predictable canon of texts with Shakespeare at its apex. The Leicester radical Thomas Cooper, born in 1805, serves as an emblematic instance here. Cooper was a sometime cobbler with minimal access to formal education, who nevertheless taught himself Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French, and developed an extraordinary devotion to Shakespeare. He memorized all of Hamlet and most of King Lear and set up a Shakespearean Chartist Association in Leicester staging 
a political fundraising performance of Hamlet with the group in 1842. The devotion of early 20th century radical Irish nationalists to Shakespeare can be seen to some extent as dovetailing with this earlier British tradition. In the case of James Connolly, the parallels are particularly striking. Born to an Irish family in Edinburgh, Connolly was the son of a night soil man, and he received very little formal education. I'm sure many people know these details already. He told his daughter Nora that his own parents couldn't afford lights and that he used to lie down on the floor near the fire so that it would shine on his book. I had no pencil to write with either, he observed. I had to char bits of stick in the fire for a pencil and for paper used whatever scraps I could find. Like Cooper, Connolly worked for a spell as a cobbler. As Samuel Levinson has observed, the labor movement at the time seemed full of cobblers. It was the victimized man's retreat. Connolly was possessed of an obsessive desire for self-education. In addition to his extensive reading, he was, again like Cooper, a talented amateur linguist. He acquired a knowledge of French and German to widen his field of studies, and he picked up enough Italian to have been able to speak in the language at meetings of the Italian Socialist Federation during his time spent in the US. In many respects, then, Connolly feels like a belated chartist, following an educational, political, and cultural track quite common among working-class British radicals in the 19th century. Like Thomas Cooper, Connolly was said to have devoured Shakespeare, but only in print form, as he had never been in a financial position to attend a performance of any of the plays. His love of the playwright was something he shared with fellow nationalist Patrick Pierce, with whom, of course, he led the rising. Pierce's father, James, was, like Connolly, an autodidact. He quit Sunday school in disgust at the inadequate answers to his acute questions and received no further formal schooling. Despite his limited education, James Pierce developed a strong passion for reading and bought a lot of books, mainly on English literature, art, architecture, history, and religion. And his love of book, his love of reading was something that he passed on to his children and specifically to uh, Patrick Pierce. In a brief memoir of his own life, Patrick Pierce recalled daydreaming himself into the world of the books that he read when he was young, so his father's books, including imagining himself as Gloucester in King Lear, deprived of my sight, as he writes, with the good Kent. His sister Mary Bridget remembered home performances of Shakespeare mounted by Pierce and his siblings. Brothers Patrick and Willie, she writes, used to act the famous quarrel scene from Julius Caesar. Pat took the part of Brutus and Willie that of the wily Cassius. Pat was fine in that scene, dignified, keen and commanding, a splendid foil to Willie's equally good rendering of the tricky, affected Cassius. All of the children together had learned virtually the whole of Macbeth, and they staged a performance of the play in the home. Subsequently, when Pierce acquired an early phonograph, 
the children used the machine to make a recording of the first scene of Macbeth. After he left school, Pierce founded a debating group called the New Ireland Literary Society, serving himself as president. Social events organized by the society often included Shakespearean recitals, with Pierce on one occasion acting out the opening scene of Hamlet with a high degree of emotion and drama. At the end of the scene, to quote again from his sister, his anger died as the ghost beckoned him and nothing but triumph and profound pity remained. In 1908, of course, Pierce established St. Enders, and one of his students, Desmond Ryan, recalled of him that he was nearly as orthodox in his views on literature as in his views on religion. He introduced his pupils to the classics of English and Irish literature, including Shakespeare, whom, according to Ryan, Pierce read and reread. The library at the school ran to hundreds of volumes with choice editions of Shakespeare among the collection. Ryan's account of Pierce's acquisition of multiple copies of the playwright's works reveals a fetishistic bibliomania with a complex dynamic. Now, this is, uh, this is Desmond Ryan. He loved his books, especially his many editions of Shakespeare, all of which he watched in the bookseller's windows, nobly renounced, entered, fingered, steeled himself, fled whole streets away, lingered, wavered, turned back and purchased, radiant and ashamed until he saw the next. It's a very weird description of book buying, it seems to me. Ryan observed of Pierce that he learned much from Shakespeare, seeing the influence of the poet particularly in Pierce's oratory. As much as anything else, however, we might say that what Pierce and Connolly both took from their intense devotion to Shakespeare was a sense of the political value of theatre and of the theatricality of politics. Pierce and Connolly came, we might say, to understand that politics often operates through the public staging both of power itself and of the resistance to power. This, of course, is a signature theme of Shakespeare's history plays, and indeed many of the other plays as well. Queen Victoria, in her imperial regime, also very clearly understood the value of the public projection of power. This is particularly evident in the staging of the Diamond Jubilee Festival in 1897, which at the instigation of Victoria's colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, became a dramatic celebration of empire. In responding to the Jubilee, Connolly sought effectively to fight one form of theatricality with another. The Irish capital, like the other outputs of empire, had been exhorted to participate in the celebrations on Jubilee Day, the 22nd of June. And in the city, all the shops which relied on unionist custom had decorations and electric lamps for night display. Connolly linked up with Maud Gaughan, with whom, as Ruth Dudley Edwards puts it, he shared a penchant for the bold move and the flamboyant gesture. And together they orchestrated a counter, spe a counter spectacle on Jubilee Day itself. 
Connolly had a black coffin fashioned with British Empire inscribed on the side, which he and a group of activists paraded through the streets of Dublin on a handcart decorated as a hearse. The demonstrators carried black flags embroidered with facts on the famines and evictions which had marked Victoria's reign, the fruits of Connolly's research. The police attempted to break up the demonstration, but as Gone herself writes, Connolly was not a man to be easily stopped, and the procession arrived in fair order at O'Connell Bridge. By this point, the police had been significantly reinforced and progress was halted, so Connolly heaved the coffin into the River Liffey, shouting, here goes the coffin of the British Empire, to hell with the British Empire. Later that evening, a second phase of the demonstration was initiated in a gesture striking in its modernity. Gone had secured a window at the National Club in Parnell Square, from which images could be projected onto a giant screen in the street outside. As Gone observes, with the help of the corporation workmen, we had arranged for the cutting of wires to prevent the display by the unionist shops of their electric decorations and to darken the streets to make the projected images more clearly visible. The slides displayed included photos of evictions and photos of the men who, during Elizabeth's reign, had been executed or who had died in prison. The police baton charged the spectators watching the Magic Lantern show, killing an old woman in the process. This prompted the crowd to smash the windows on those shops on Sackville Street and O'Connell Street that were displaying the Jubilee decorations. The anti-Jubilee demonstration was, we might say, street theatre in the very most literal sense. But Connolly and Pierce and many of the other nationalist activists were also involved in more conventional forms of theatre, often with an explicitly Shakespearean underpinning. Again, as, as Tony has said, Thomas McDonough was the author, among other plays, of When the Dawn is Come, performed at the Abbey in 1908. McDonough was one of those Irish nationalists who were close admirers of English literature. A lecturer in English at UCD, his MA thesis, published as a book in 1913, was a study of the poetics of Shakespeare's contemporary Thomas Campion. And Desmond Ryan also reports McDonough addressing his students at UCD in lyrical terms about Jane Austen. There's no one like Jane, lads, he said to them with deep affection. When the dawn has come is set 50 years hence in Ireland in time of insurrection, though in fact there's nothing futuristic about the world of McDonough's play. The central character is Turlock McKiernan, a captain in the Irish insurgent army and a member of the Council of Ireland. McKiernan is a national hero in the play, but he is also given to introspective intellectualization, sometimes to the detriment of his immediate political project. At the end of the play, fatally wounded, he finds himself craving a perfect rest. The Hamlet residences in the play are heavily accented to the extent that, as James Moran nicely puts it, 
when the dawn has come, almost feels like a bad quarter of Shakespeare's play. In the final lines of the drama, Father John as something like a composite of Hamlet's Horatio and Lear's Kent, commands the onstage audience, hush, hush, our voices are vain in the ear of the world. Pray for his soul, peace at last to his soul. Ultimately, Turlock dies a hero, having led his troops in a battle which has won Ireland, which had remained unwon a further while, perhaps a weary while. By contrast with the Shakespearean original to which it is so indebted then, at the end of Macdonough's play, no Fortinbras, so to speak, stands waiting ominously in the wings. Pierce too, of course, was a dramatist. Indeed, his sister Mary Bridget reports in her memoir that when he was a mere child, he began to write plays and to teach us how to act in them. Pierce was a founding committee member of the Theatre of Ireland group, which aimed to offer an alternative to the Abbey project, while also cooperating with the Abbey. A number of Pierce's plays uh, were, again, as Tony has mentioned, performed at the Abbey, generally with pupils from his school serving as cast. Between 1908 and 1912, the St. Enda's Boys appeared in several, seven different pieces by Pierce staged at the theatre. In May of 1915, his play The Master was staged at the Irish Theatre in Hardwick Street. The play draws indirectly on the historical shift in Ireland from paganism to Christianity, often conceptualised by Irish writers through an imagined encounter and debate between St. Patrick and Oisin. Pierce's play is set in an unspecified time when Chiron, a monk-like schoolteacher, clashes with Dara, the holder of a local kingship. Dara's men surround Chiron's school, and he revels in his power over the master. There is a watcher at every door of your house. There is a tracker on every path of the forest. The wild boar crouches in his lair for fear of the men who fill this wood. As Dara threatens him, Chiron cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forging a very obvious identification with Christ. Chiron is a heroic figure who becomes the victim of a clinical form of politics and power. And possibly we may see Pierce here drawing inspiration from Shakespeare's figuring of Richard II, overwhelmed in his encounter with the coldly efficient Bolingbroke. Um, Richard II was a play that Yeats was very much interested in. Yeats saw Richard as the hero of the play. Chiron is slain, but an invocation by one of his disciples causes the archangel Michael to appear. And when challenged by Dara to declare who he is, he replies, I am he that waiteth at the portal. I am he that hasteneth. I am he that rideth before the squadron. I am he that holdeth a shield over the retreat of man's host when Satan cometh in war. I am he that turneth and smiteth. I am he that is a captain of the host of God. As Rushin Nigarvi and Eugene McNulty have noted, the play uses the traditional narrative 
of the shift from the pagan to the Christian to provide an analog for nationalist resistance to the impositions of imperialist power. Chiron's transmutation into a Christ-like figure and the intercession of the archangel uses Christian iconography to suggest that self-sacrifice in the face of superior power need not be read as failure, but rather that it can trigger a greater power which can ultimately enact an enduring triumph. These ideas would, as we shall see, prove to be central to Pierce's conception of the rising itself. Connolly, as we've seen in relation to the Jubilee protests, also had a keen appreciation of the value of theatrical spectacle in a, in a political context. As leader from 1914 of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, he controlled the union's Dublin headquarters building, Liberty Hall. The front room of the hall had been used as a theatre space from the end of 1912, and various groups mounted theatrical and other performances there. In September of 1915, for example, the Irish Women Workers' Union announced that spreading the news that favourite farce by Lady Gregory will be performed and will be followed by a high-class concert. New songs in Irish and English will be heard, and we promise our friends a good programme. Early in 1916, the main hall itself was set up so that it could serve as a theatre, and Connolly officially opened the new facility on the 20th of February. The Workers' Republic, in announcing the inauguration of the new space, hailed it as next to the revo- uh, sorry, next to the revolution, the greatest event of 1916. So the theatrical spectacle here comes next in line to uh, the rebellion itself. From February through March, regular performances were offered at the new theatre by the Irish Workers Dramatic Company. And at the end of March, a new play was advertised for the 26th under the title Under Which Flag. It had been written by Connolly himself, who was in fact a lifelong versifier. The journalist and activist Francis Sheehy Skeffington praised the play in a review in The Workers' Republic observing that the dialogue is excellent, entirely unforced, and in harmony with the characters depicted. Ironically, the one aspect of the play that Sheehy Skeffington disliked was the element in it that was most Shakespearean, Connolly's persistent use of soliloquy. Sheehy Skeffington found this to be dramatically inartistic, though noting slyly with a nod to Unser Shakespeare, that Connolly could plead the example of a great English dramatist who is more honoured in Germany than in his own country. As James Moran has indicated, Connolly set his play in close dialogue with Yeats' Kathleen Nihulahan, which had first been performed in 1902 with Maud Gaughan famously taking the title role. Yeats' play quickly became a staple of the Nationalist Theatre, Kathleen Houlihan's simple plot offers, again, as I'm sure most people will know, a central character, Michael Gillan, who opts to reject domestic contentment and prosperity in favor of following Kathleen into battle in the 1798 United Irish Uprising. 
In the process, he effectively turns his back on his fiancée, Delia Cahill. Connolly shifts the setting to March 1867 and to the eve of an abortive Fenian uprising, a moment seen as foundational for the militant separatism of Connolly's own period. As with Yeats' play, Under Which Flag is also framed around a choice. In this instance, however, it's not the domestic that serves as the competing attraction to militant activism. In Connolly's play, the central couple are Frank O'Donnell and Mary O'Neill. Both are politically naive, but O'Neill is brought to embrace a nationalist standpoint by a neighbour, Dan McMahon, who has lost his sight in an earlier separatist campaign and who serves as a kind of symbolic seer in the play. O'Donnell's naivete is figured as a decision to join the British Army with high expectation for what this will mean for his future. I will see the world, be well taken care of, and after my time is done, retire on a pension and come home and spend my days in Ireland. In a significant revision of Yeats' narrative, it is O'Neill who compels her beloved to reevaluate his position so that his choice becomes a matter of whether he will fight for the British under the Union flag or for his own people under the Irish flag. Prompted by O'Neill, O'Donnell reverses his decision to join the British Army. And as at the end of Yeats' play, he exits at the conclusion of the drama to join the other militants. It's a particularly potent thing to put on stage at a time you know, when tens of thousands of Irish men were joining the British Army uh, to fight in the First World War, uh, and when many people faced precisely that choice of whether to join the, the separatist volunteers or whether to join the, the British Army. O'Connolly's play was intricately bound in with the rising itself in a way which illustrates very clearly the extent to which theatre and political action became, in a way, fused virtually to the point of indistinguishability in Ireland at this time. The issue of the Workers' Republic, which carried Sheehy Skeffington's review of Under Which Flag, included an announcement that the Council of the Irish Citizen Army has resolved, after grave and earnest deliberation, to hoist the green flag of Ireland over Liberty Hall, as over a fortress held for Ireland by the arms of Irishmen. The flag-raising ceremony was arranged for the afternoon of Sunday, April the 16th, Palm Sunday, and a second performance of Connolly's play was organised for that evening. In the afternoon, the Irish Citizen Army mustered outside Liberty Hall, and in his history of the ICA, R.M. Fox quotes a member of the Colour Guard present on that occasion. I noticed that some men, old and middle-aged, and a great number of women were crying. And I knew then that all this was not in vain, and that they all realised what was meant by the hoisting of the flag. Fox himself characterised the flag-raising ceremony as the prologue to the play. He intends the phrase metaphorically, of course, 
But in a more literal sense, the flag ceremony was also folded into an actual theatrical epilogue. In the performance of Under Which Flag on the evening of the flag-waving ceremony, Sean Connolly, the Abbey actor who played the part of Dan McMahon, flourished the same flag from earlier in the day on the Liberty Hall stage, declaring, under this flag only will I serve. Under this flag, if need be, will I die. So that the title of the play now became literalized. I should just say in passing that Sean Connolly was not related to, to James Connolly. The rising, as it unfolded, continued to be overlaid with theatrical connections and consciously conceived elements of theatricality. During the course of the week leading up to Easter, Kathleen Lynn, an Irish citizen army uh, medic, drove to Pierce's school, where volunteers, as she put it, loaded the car up with ammunition and put some theatrical stuff on top to disguise the weaponry for the journey back across the city. On Easter Sunday evening, Constance Markovich, a senior member of the ICA, who had some years earlier acted opposite Sean Connolly in the patriotic melodrama, The Memory of the Dead, or a romantic drama of 98, was busy with military preparations when a friend visited her at Liberty Hall. Assuming that the business in hand was theatrical, the friend commented, rehearsing, I suppose, before inquiring of the imagined play, is it for children? With a dry sense of irony, Markovitz responded, no, it's for grown-ups. Sean Connolly was also a member of the ICA, and on Easter Sunday night he was told that in the morning he was to be given command of a group of volunteers tasked with attacking Dublin Castle. He embraced the assignment enthusiastically, telling a colleague, I have been given a dandy job. Included in Connolly's small force was Helena Maloney. Maloney had taken part in several dramatic performances, including playing the part of Delia Cahill in a production of Yeats' Kathleen Houlihan, subsequently herself joining the Abbey Company, where she too had acted opposite Sean Connolly. As the leader of his small force, Connolly, in Desmond Ryan's words, headed the march to the castle, demanded admittance, and when the policeman on duty slammed the gate to, shot him dead, thus inflicting the first casualty of the rising. Because the castle complex was considered too difficult to defend with the severely limited number of insurgents available, Connolly's group retired to occupy positions in a series of nearby buildings, including City Hall. Connolly was wounded in the arm early in proceedings, but he made light of it, telling his younger brother that it was only a revolver shot and would be all right soon. A little while later, he ventured out onto the roof of City Hall, intending to raise the Irish flag there, uh, possibly but only possibly the same flag that had been raised over City Hall. A sniper positioned in the clock tower of the castle fired at him, killing him instantly. Kathleen Lynn pronounced him dead, and Helena Maloney whispered a prayer in his ear, observing later, we were all very distressed at his death, I particularly, as I had known him so long and had acted with him. 
with a grimly neat symmetry, having inflicted the first casualty of the rising on the British side, Connolly became himself the first casualty on the Irish side. Daniel Corkery nicely described the participants in the rising as a league of bookworms and students at whom the politicians were wont to jeer. It might be as accurate to say that it was an uprising carried forward by a league of playwrights and actors, most of them heavily under the dramatic sway of Shakespeare. But the rising can also be said to have been itself a kind of theatrical event, as Fox indicates in styling the Palm Sunday flag-raising ceremony as the prologue of a play. Connolly and Pierce both knew that they had no prospect of success and that their actions largely constituted a symbolic performance. As he left Liberty Hall on Easter Monday morning, Connolly commented to a colleague, William O'Brien, we are going to be slaughtered. Is there no chance of success, O'Brien asked, none, whatever, Connolly is said to have replied. Likewise, on the same morning as Sean Connolly was about to depart for Dublin Castle, James Connolly shook his hand and said, good luck, Sean, we won't meet again. Pierce, too, knew that the action would be futile militarily, possessed by a form of what his biographer, uh, Joost Augustine, has very usefully termed messianic nationalism. For Pierce, the symbolism of the occasion was very clearly its dominant power. A proponent at times of a crude blood and soil ideology, Pierce had famously written in 1913 that bloodshed is a cleansing and a sanctifying thing, and the nation which regards it as the final horror has lost its manhood. Two years later, he observed that the old heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefields. A devout Catholic, Pierce leaned heavily precisely on the, on the symbolism of blood sacrifice and renewal, suggested by the launching of the rising on the day immediately following Easter Sunday. Indeed, the very word rising has a double potency in this context. We've already seen the way in which Pierce invoked Christian mythology to serve a nationalist agenda in the master. This invocation is even more pointed in his final play, The Singer. Pierce originally intended that the St. Enda's boys should perform the drama in the week leading up to the rising, but he appears possibly under the influence of Thomas McDonough to have changed his mind, <clears throat> fearing that its, political, uh, its politically explicit theme might be picked up by British intelligence sources. The principal character in the play is Macdara, the singer, who has been exiled from his home village because the songs he was making were setting the people's hearts on fire with opposition to those in power. He returns to his home at a time of political unrest and takes upon himself the task of facing the enemy unarmed and unprotected, declaring one man can free a people as one man redeemed the world. I will take no pike. I will go into battle with bare hands. I will stand up before the gal as Christ hung naked before men on the tree. 
It is a symbolic gesture which gambles certain immediate failure against longer-term triumph, precisely the wager that Pierce made in launching the Rising itself. The Easter Rising lasted, of course, less than a week in the end. On the Thursday, the Irish Times reprinted the text of the official regulations to be observed under martial law, observing that by keeping these regulations with religious strictness, we shall help the state and we shall be doing a very valuable service to ourselves. Under the terms of martial law, a curfew was imposed every evening, commencing at 7.30 p.m. The Irish Times offered some suggestions as to how to fill the hours of confinement. The householder, the Times suggests, might put his little garden into a state of decency that will hold promise of beauty. He can do some useful mending and painting about the house. Best of all, perhaps, he can acquire or reacquire the art of reading. That is to say, the study with an active and receptive mind of what the great writers of the past have said nobly and for all time. How many citizens of Dublin, the Irish Times asked, have any real knowledge of the works of Shakespeare? Could any better occasion for reading them be afforded than the coincidence of enforced domesticity with the poet's tercentenary? The question how many citizens of Dublin have any real knowledge of the works of Shakespeare might well, as we've seen, have been answered in a way that would likely have discomfited the editorial staff of the Dublin newspaper. The barbarians at the gates have improved themselves to be much better read than the Irish Times might have suspected. But in any event, the process of reassimilating Shakespeare to the cosy certainties of Imperial Dublin continued blithely in the weeks that followed. Just as the clearing up of the debris left by the rising got underway. In July, the Royal Hibernian School, Military School mounted a Shakespeare festival. The program patriotically included a pageant depicting the Battle of Agincourt. The intention was that the performances should be held in the grounds of the school, but the weather partially upset the arrangements, forcing the performers and spectators into the school's gymnasium, where matters proceeded in a space devoid of theatrical trappings and simply with the Union Jack as a background. In the same month, the British Empire Shakespeare Society was fully back in business, staging an outdoor performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream at Lord Ivy's Gardens. To regular readers of the Irish Times, it must have felt as if their world was slowly writing itself after the turbulence of Easter week. But as James Moran has noted, the rising very quickly generated its own commemorative culture, becoming the subject of endless, as Moran puts it, provincial memorial ceremonies, popular ballads, decorative tea towels, novelty mugs, and a bewildering array of other flotsam and jetsam. And all of this served, of course, in the immediate term to maintain separatist momentum through to the Anglo-Irish War and onward to the founding of the independent state. 
contemplating this memorializing activity, we might be reminded of the emergence of what Barbara Hodgson has styled the Shakespeare trade, particularly in Stratford and Avon in the wake of the act of British cultural of British national cultural memory that was the 1864 tercentenary. That tercentenary, particularly noted for its own tide of decorative tea towels, novelty mugs, and bewildering array of flotsam and jetsam, served as a key stimulus to Shakespeare's rising centrality in the cultural field of Victorian Britain. Militant Irish nationalists for all their rejection of other aspects of British culture and identity, were, as we've seen, heavily drawn to the cultural force of a Shakespeare thereby elevated to the position of supreme and effectively supranational playwright. Ultimately, of course, they refashioned Shakespeare, drawing on his work and on the power of theatre more generally, to stage both actual plays of their own and also public spectacles of political resistance. In their turn, these separatists and their staged event entered into national cultural memory, serving as an immediate spur to further militant action, but also persisting as a force in the Irish imaginary as the rising entered Irish national mythology, serving emotionally and psychologically as the origin myth of the national unit. In a nice observation, W.I. Thompson has noted that before Pierce fired a shot, he rehearsed insurrection by writing a play about it. And indeed, the remark might be extended to take in many of the other central participants in the rising. Reviewing the history of this, histo- of this theatrically saturated insurgency, led by an intellectual faction deeply indebted to Shakespeare, We can then surely say that for these Irish revolutionaries, the play was indeed very much the thing. Thank you.